From the healing heart of Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland comes the Dr. Nina Show with a message of hope for people struggling with binge eating. She helps listeners break free from emotional eating by identifying their hidden triggers and provides a path for healing without dieting or focusing on food. Dr. Nina inspires us to enjoy the full spectrum of human experience we all deserve to live. Hi there. Welcome to the Dr. Nina Show. I am your host, Dr. Nina Savelle-Rockland. I am, apparently I couldn't say my name just now. I am your host, Dr. Nina Savelle-Rockland. I'm a psychoanalyst specializing in eating disorders, and I am here to help you break free from binging, dieting, and body shame. I want you to wake up and think about your day, not your diet. And the first step to creating a binge-free, happy life is to focus on what's eating at you instead of on what you are eating. And I am here to help you do exactly that. I am here to help you every step of the way. So my topic today is what is driving your binge eating? Uh, I'm going to discuss that and then I'm going to open up the phones afterwards. So if you have a question, you can call in and talk to me at that time. If you are on Instagram, since I'm also live streaming the show on Instagram, feel free to comment anytime and I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Okay, what drives binge eating? When it comes to food, sometimes you might feel like you're in the passenger seat And the driver, which is the part of you that binges, is just going to do whatever it wants to do. So today I'm going to help you identify what's driving the behavior of binging and show you two crucial steps to change that you could do right away. Neither of them involves what you're doing with food. And they're very easy to do. So, okay, for for starters, think of yourself as a car. Now, if this seems weird, take a moment and think about it. We we refer to car bodies, and we take our cars to the body shop for repairs. So as you travel on the proverbial road of life, keep in mind you are not alone. There are three basic parts to all of us. You're driving along with these three different parts, the self, the critic, and the soother supporter. So the self is the part of you that has needs, wants, wishes, emotions, and conflicts. When you say, well, I I feel mad, I feel glad, I'm afraid, I'm anxious, I'm worried, I'm terrified, I'm whatever. That's your self talking. The critic, the critic is the part of you that informs you of all your perceived transgressions. It is relentlessly judgmental. It is critical. It is sometimes just downright nasty. And by the way, if you refer to yourself in the second person, it's usually the critic talking. Like when you tell yourself, oh, you have no willpower. You're disgusting. That's the critic talking. The soother supporter is understanding, supportive, kind, soothing. And often that's the part that shows up for other people, but not so much for you. So ask yourself, which of these parts is in the driver's seat of your life? Chances are it's the critic. And when the critic is behind the wheel, it causes a lot of anxiety. It causes a lot of distress. It causes a lot of disharmony. It it messes with your self-esteem. It's the worst. And for many people, the critic strikes exactly when you need the most support. So when you feel the worst, instead of soothing and supporting yourself, you attack yourself, criticize yourself. And that leads to turning to food for comfort or distraction. And then the critic is there to judge you again. How could you have eaten that? Oh my God, you failed. And the cycle continues. So if you speak to yourself in a critical way, you're going to feel really bad. And if you don't soothe and support yourself with words, you're going to use food for that purpose because it works even temporarily. So I want to talk about the different types of self-critic that you, one of them or many of them are going to relate to you um, and just give you some food for thought about that. So uh, there are two researchers, Jay Early and Bonnie Weiss, 
And they researched self-criticism and they identified seven types of inner critic. I'm going to go over them with you. It's pretty interesting. So the first one is the conformist. And this type of inner critic is motivated to make you fit in uh, into whatever standards are prevalent in your family, your culture, or your society. The idea is if you fit in, you're going to be liked, and therefore you're going to be safe from being abandoned or shamed or rejected. And so this type of critic keeps you from being authentic. It keeps you from being your genuine self because it wants you to conform. And therefore, the idea is, oh, you know, if you conform, you'll feel good, you'll fit in, everything's going to be great. But at the expense of your authenticity, which, of course, makes you feel bad. Another kind of critic is the destroyer. The destroyer is the kind of inner critic that makes you feel bad about being you. It attacks your basic sense of self. It destroys your sense of self-worth. It uses shame as a primary way to attack you. And it gives you the idea that you're not worthy of anything good. And this is the most destructive type of inner critic. And it is usually the result of um, early trauma or deprivation. By the way, um, let me just take a moment and tell you where this where this comes from. So when we are uh, young and we don't feel good, we feel bad, whether we are experiencing big T trauma, some like really blatant extreme abuse or little T trauma, which is um, the incidence of many smaller traumas, but they have a cumulative effect. So big, big T trauma is like, you know, the big, uh, you know, butcher knife wound to your body. It's huge. It hurts. It's terrible. It's a one-time thing though. Little T trauma is like a thousand small cuts. And believe me, a thousand small cuts is really, really painful, as painful as one stab wound to your body. So whether you're having big T trauma or little T trauma, you're going to feel bad. And kids do not have the wherewithal to say, oh, I feel bad because of my circumstances. And I have really nothing to do with these circumstances. People are choosing to treat me a certain way, or they're just misattuned to me, or they they don't know how to speak to me. They don't know how to nurture me. They're treating themselves the way, you know, they were treated this way. Now they're treating me this way. Kids do not have the wherewithal to say that. Kids say, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me that these adults around me or people around me are treating me badly or misattuned to me? I feel bad. It must be my fault. It must be my fault. If I were to change myself, then I could get the good treatment that I am missing. And this is when you plant the seed of the destroyer, the destroyer type of critic, because then you say, oh, it's a, it's a, for, it's a form of hope. Like it's the illusion of hope it starts with that. If I can just figure out what's wrong with me, what's bad about me and make myself good, then I can get everyone to treat me the way I want to be treated. The problem is there was never anything wrong with you in the first place, this was all an interpretation, but it becomes a conviction that there is something wrong with you. And therefore, people are going to see it. They're going to discern it in some way. You can't always figure out, well, what is the, the thing that's so bad about you? You just have this pervasive sense that there's something wrong with you, something unlovable, something unlikable. Maybe you attach that to your weight. Maybe you attach that to other things in your life. But this is how the this is how the destroyer is born, essentially. Um, another type of, of inner critic is the guilt tripper. This critic is extremely harsh. Well, they all are. I should stop saying that. They're all extremely harsh. Um, it, it holds you to a very high standard in all areas. And it is unforgiving of any human flaw or mistake. It can't allow you to forgive yourself for any real or perceived transgression. So this critic tries to protect you from making mistakes in the future by constantly reminding you 
of past mistakes, but all it does is it makes you overly self-conscious and hypercritical about your words and your actions. And then you can't relax. You're often when you have this kind of a critic, uh, you know, in the driver's seat, you are not only having a conversation with someone, you're simultaneously observing yourself uh, and and scrutinizing yourself, wondering what kind of mistakes you're going to make, or should you have used that word, or should you have said that, or did you say too much? So you can never really relax, because even if you're talking to others, that critic is watching you and carrying on some dialogue about all the things that you're doing wrong. Eventually, and the point of this is, when you are this self-critical, often we turn to food to get away from our own critical voice. Another kind of critic is the controller. The controller, it's a kind of critic that tries to make sure you control yourself totally because it's afraid that if you are not controlling yourself really like in a harsh way, that you're going to get totally impulsive. And it uses shame as a way to keep you in line. So since this kind of inner critic has an all or nothing approach, it creates deprivation. So your your inner critic might say, well, you can't have ice cream until you weigh this. You can't have that. You're not allowed to have that. Who do you think you are? And then, of course, that sets up deprivation. And what happens with deprivation? We want the very thing that we think we cannot have, and therefore deprivation leads to binging. And then, because it's so all or nothing. It's, well, I already ate the ice cream. I might as well eat the cookies, the pasta, the pizza, everything with the carb that I haven't let myself have. And then it's a binge. Another kind of inner critic is the perfectionist. The perfectionist thinks you have to do everything perfectly. It's either perfect or it's terrible. You can't miss a beat or you know, your critic will tell you you're a failure. This critic sets the highest standard for anything you do or anything you say, kind of like the controller. And often that standard is impossible to reach or maintain. So the idea behind perfectionism is that if you're perfect, you won't be rejected. If you're perfect, you won't be judged. But since there is no such thing as perfectionism, as perfection in human behavior, it always makes you feel like you're not good enough. Another kind is called the taskmaster. So the taskmaster, um, also known as the slave driver, this kind of critic is all about working hard, being successful, never mi- missing a beat. This is a, This is a critic that wants you to be a human doing and not a human being. It overemphasizes accomplishment over experience. So if you have this kind of critic in your driver's seat, you have an all or nothing view of yourself. You're either working hard or you're feeling lazy. There's no in between. And you're only as good as what you are doing and what you are accomplishing. And therefore, if you're not doing and accomplishing we have a taskmaster here. <laughs> Hello. Yes. You're either you're either doing it and then you have to do it perfectly and you do it better than everyone else and you have to be- do it better than the last time you did it. And if you don't, then you feel like you've failed. So that is, you know, it's a it's a really hard way to live with that kind of taskmaster slave driver always telling you how you are not good enough. And then even a lot of times, even when you do well and you accomplish something, it becomes, ah, yeah, okay, I did that. So what? You minimize it. Mm, Whatever. Anyone could have done it or it took me so long to do it or, you know, somehow minimizing that. And then you go on to the next thing. Beverly, that's your sister. Your sister's a, a taskmaster to herself or to you or both. Sometimes people who are taskmasters to themselves are also taskmasters to you. It's not pleasant. All right. And the last one is the underminer. This type of critic 
attacks your sense of self. And its purpose, as with all of these, is actually to keep you safe. But for this, the underminer, the idea is if you don't take risks, you won't put yourself in a position of being wrong, of being rejected, or experiencing any kind of failure. So it it it's a saboteur, essentially. Uh, if, if, if It's almost like the idea is this. Well, if you don't step on the rug of happiness, no one can yank it out from underneath you. If you don't actually climb the ladder of success, no one can knock you down. If if you don't, if you don't, I can't even think of the right analogy for this, but if you don't get to a good place, the other shoe is not going to drop. That pesky other shoe that drops, meaning uh, good things are always followed by bad. So this kind of critic keeps you from getting to a place where you feel good so that you won't feel bad afterwards because, oh, good is always followed by bad, says the underminer. It's like if you never enter paradise, you can never be kicked out. So those are the types of inner critic, and there's a lot of overlap, and one or many of them may, yeah, saboteur also, right? one or many of them may um, resonate with you. And it's important to really identify that and look at it as not, well, this is reality, this is life. No, this is an inner critic talking to you. And remember, when we are critical of ourselves or binging, self-criticism, it's all in the service of something. It's all a frenemy. It all does something for you, even though it also ultimately hurts you much more than it helps. Binging, binge eating is a friend of me. It's a friend in that it helps you. It comforts you. It distracts you. It keeps you from, you know, feeling bad things, right? You're, you're, you feel bad about something and you're in the binge zone. You're not feeling that anymore. You're just in that zone. But of course, it also hurts you. It hurts your self-esteem. It hurts your sense of self. Being self-critical does the same thing. It thinks, the critic thinks it's helping, but it is actually hurting. So here is what to do to challenge that pesky inner critic. Got to kick it out of the, the driver's seat and put it in, you know, maybe in the passenger seat, maybe in the car behind us. We all need a little bit of self-criticism, emphasize on a little bit to keep us in line, but not like this. This is way too harsh. Just makes you feel bad about you. And then you may end up eating to get away from your own mean, critical voice. So to challenge the inner critic, first, recognize who's actually driving. Who is in the driver's seat? If you would not talk to other people the way you talk to yourself, then that inner critic is not really you. It's a learned response. So determine if that mean voice is really you or does it belong to someone else? Does it sound like a parent, a sibling, a relative, a teacher, someone from the past who talked to you in this way? So consider whether your inner critic reminds you of someone you know. Think back and identify if someone talked to you or to someone else that way. Often when people are told they're not smart enough, they're not good enough, they're too much, they're too emotional, they're too sensitive or they're deficient in some way, they internalize that perspective and then they start relating to themselves that way. Another reason why people become self-critical is if they don't get enough structure or boundaries growing up. When kids are left too much to their own devices or the boundaries are kind of too loose, like, sure, you can come home at four in the morning. I know you're 13, but you've got this. No worries. We're not even going to pay attention. We're cool parents, right? When you get in, when, when you don't get en- enough structure, kids create that structure for themselves. When you don't feel like you have enough containment, you create your own inner parent. And that's often way harsher than any adult would be. 
So silencing that inner critic is a necessary step to creating a binge-free, happy life. Um, first, you got to figure out what is that voice? Look at it as not you, right? That voice is not you. You are the person who talks to other people in a kind, supportive, soothing way. If you talk to yourself in a way that you'd never talk to anybody else, then that way that you talk to yourself, that's your inner critic. It is learned. And the good news is you can unlearn it. So once you identify the source of that inner critic, it's time to challenge it so it no longer drives you crazy. So the second step is to banish that critic to the backseat, or like I said, maybe a car, two car lengths behind you by doing this. Be a friend to yourself. This is where you have to cultivate that inner soother supporter. So think about how you express support for other people. I'm guessing that you're probably caring and understanding and helpful and friendly and nice. Imagine if you spoke that way to yourself. If you relate to yourself the way you relate to others, you're going to feel better and you're going to feel better about yourself. So imagine this. Imagine a friend tells you that she ate way too much ice cream the night before and she followed that up by having a whole box of Oreos and then ordering pizza full on binge. It's unlikely that you would say to your friend, that is disgusting. You have no control. You're a fat pig. I hate you. Ew. If you wouldn't say it to a friend, don't say it to yourself. A better response to a friend would be something like, huh, I wonder what was going on last night. Sounds like you might have used food to cope. Let's, let's be curious about that. What was that all about? What was going on? What would you be thinking about if you weren't thinking about food? Or what would be on your mind if you weren't thinking about that binge? What was that binge about? What was eating at you? So talk to yourself as you would talk to someone you love. Be nice to yourself and you will feel better. You will absolutely feel better when you feel supported by yourself instead of when that inner critic is in charge and it just tears you down. It attacks you. You feel bad. And then food is there to escape and to comfort yourself because you've just attacked yourself. When you are driven by a wish to be supportive and understanding to yourself as well as to others, you stop using food to cope. And that's how you stop the inner critic from driving you crazy. So if you have any questions, I am here to answer them. You you can feel free to call in. Um, the number in the studio is 323-203-0815. 323-203-0815. I would love to hear what is eating at you or weighing on you because, of course, the real, uh, the only way to uh, stop binge eating is to focus on not what you are eating, but why and find new ways of responding to yourself. If you're on Instagram, feel free to drop a comment or a question in the comment box. All right, so I also have some questions. Um, here is a question from someone who says, I, I'd been doing really well, but then I had a setback and I binged. What can I do so I won't go back to square one like that? Well, first of all, you are not at square one. The phrase back to square one means you're at your original starting point after failure. It's like the game Shoots and Ladders. I don't know if you've ever played that. If you have kids or if you have been a kid, you probably have played that. And um, it, at one point, like you go down the big chute and you end up at square one. But life, luckily, is not a board game. And you aren't back at the beginning if you have a setback with food. And it sounds like this It sounds like um, this person might have learned a lot about themselves and a, about why they struggled with binging as a coping mechanism. Um, and all the work that you do to stop binging, as long as it's not willpower, as long as it's not control, as long as you're looking at why you're turning to food and finding new ways of 
comforting yourself, responding to yourself, relating to yourself, as long as you're doing that and not white knuckling it, you're learning something about yourself. You're learning about what are your triggers. Food is not a trigger. We are not, it feels like we're triggered by food, but we are triggered by a situation or something that we can't see or possibly don't want to look at. Food is the solution to the problem. It is not the problem. So you can look at this, um, what this person calls a setback, as an opportunity to learn more about yourself. So ask yourself, what caused the setback? What was the trigger? What was going on around you? What were you What were you watching? If you're watching TV, a lot of times people are watching TV or they're reading something and they they get triggered. But before that, they are uh, recognizing that they are being triggered. And, and, and before they are consciously aware that they are being triggered, they go to food for comfort or distraction. So the more information you have, the better equipped you will be to deal with those kinds of situations in the future. Um, so look, success is not just a straight line up. It's up and then a, a dip, up and a dip, up and a dip. But you're still farther ahead or like the the two steps forward, one step back. You are still a step ahead. So instead of looking at being you know, back to square one, Look at it like, okay, I had a dip. What can I learn from this experience? No one, I've, I have, I've been a, an eating disorder therapist for 20 years. In that 20 years, I have never, ever met anybody who just one day stopped binging. In fact, when people stop binging, all of a sudden, it makes me a little nervous. It tells me that they are often, they are, they are using willpower rather than really learning new ways of responding to themselves when they are upset because it you don't just stop one day what happens is you do it less it goes from binging every day five ten times a day every day of the week to binging two times a day every day of the week to binging you know once a day every day of the week to binging you know six days a week to binging five days a week to binging every other day, to every other week, to I think I did it last month, to not at all. I wish we could do do it just all of a sudden, cold turkey, like you stop smoking. No, we can't. That is just temporary. Until you learn to identify why you're turning to food and find new ways of responding to yourself, it's going to keep happening. That's why the diet industry is a $60 billion industry. It focuses on what you are eating, not why. It tells you what to eat, and it makes you think that the problem is food. No. Binging is the solution to the problem. It is not the problem, even though it sure feels like it. When you identify the problem, when you learn to express what's going on with you, and when you learn to be kind to yourself and supportive and loving, then you comfort yourself with words. You soothe yourself with words. Everything changes. That's when you have liberation. I say often, I do not believe in recovery when it comes to eating disorders. I don't believe in recovery. I believe in liberation. Recovery means being in recovery. You're always having to think about it. It's always on your mind. Who wants to live like that? No, you don't want to live like that. Liberation means it was something that you dealt with and now you you fought this battle, this internal battle, and now you've won and it's done. You're liberated. You're, you've moved on. We don't say we're in recovery from depression. We're in recovery from, you know, anxiety. We say, oh, I used to be depressed. Now I'm not. I used to be anxious. Now I'm not. It's something that you can get past forever, no matter how long you've struggled and no matter how bad it is, when you change the way you respond to yourself, everything changes. When we, when we make peace with ourselves, when we identify why we're 
turning to food, instead of focusing on what we're eating, when we learn to express ourselves and when we accept ourselves, our weirdness, our wonderfulness, all the parts of us, and when we are nice to ourselves, guess what? Binging stops being a problem. Earlier, I said that, um, you know, when we have the self, the critic, and the soother supporter, and that when often when we when we have the most need for soothing and support, instead we criticize ourselves, we attack ourselves. That leads to binging to escape that 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 critical voice that because that critic makes you feel bad, makes you want to escape it. Food makes you escape it. The more that you cultivate that soother supporter for yourself, probably shows up for other people. The more that you cultivate it for yourself, the easier it gets, the better you feel, the better you feel. You don't need food to feel better. Okay. Another question is um, sort of related to the first one. What can I do when I mess up and binge? All right. So first, don't get mad at yourself. Don't look at it like you messed up. Instead, be curious. Be curious, not critical. Being curious allows you to figure out what caused that binge. Try to figure out what was eating at you instead of focusing on what you were eating. And think of it as being a detective. I like to say, I'm a detective of the mind. I'm going to solve the mystery with my patients or my clients in my coaching programs. What, like, we're going to solve the mystery of why you're doing something you don't want to do or why you're not doing something you want to do. Let's solve the mystery of why you are binging and let's solve the mystery of why you are not taking care of yourself the way you want to. And detectives don't say uh, when they find clues, oh, that's a weird clue or that's a bad clue or that's an embarrassing, shameful clue. They say, hmm, that's a clue. This is good information. So think of yourself as a detective. What was the trigger? And by the way, the trigger, again, is not food. It is some situation, some thought, some emotion that you may or may not be aware of is triggering you. Triggers are often uh, hidden in our unconscious mind. We get so used to coping with food, we don't even register that we're being triggered. It's automatic. Um, question is impulsive are impulsive behaviors and tendencies related to internal feelings? Absolutely. You know, um, let me give the example of it's one of my favorite examples of Jenna, not her real name. So Jenna said that she was relaxing and watching TV. Nothing was going on. She wasn't upset. She wasn't worried about anything. She was just Netflix and chilling when all of a sudden Ben and Jerry started calling her name. And that's how she put it, like calling my name. She said nothing was bothering her. Nothing was going on. She said she was addicted to Chunky Monkey, clearly to her. Addicted to Chunky Monkey, why else would she be suddenly drawn to the kitchen by Ben and Jerry's calling her name? Well, I asked what she was watching on TV before Ben and Jerry started calling. And she said it was uh, her favorite show, Charmed. So since she was doing something she enjoyed, there was no reason or so she thought that she would want to go down a pint of ice cream. Well, I wondered what the episode had actually been about. She said, well, it's when this demon comes down and breaks the bond between the sisters and they start fighting and everything gets really nasty. I said, oh, sisters fighting, everything gets nasty. Hmm. And that's when she got it, which is that she had a terrible relationship with her sister. Watching the show activated intense feelings about their relationship. But before she was consciously aware that she was being triggered, she went to ice cream for comfort and distraction. Ice cream was not the problem. It was the solution to the problem. This is also why I created my food mood formula, because so many people get uh, get so 
good at bypassing whatever it is that the the trigger is and going right to food. Um, So if you don't have me to tell you, hmm, let's look at this. What was that all about? I wanted to give you a I wanted to give you a, a, a formula that can help you figure out what is going on inside that is leading to that behavior. And if I have time, I'll go over the, the formula in just a little bit. So yes, impulsive behaviors are related to something internal that, that, that you, you bypass often because it's so uncomfortable. You go right to the solution, which is to, to eat. I co-edited a book called Beyond the Primal Addiction a few years ago with my mentor, Dr. Salman Akhtar, who's amazing. And uh, we have a new book coming out next year called Food Matters. Get it? Play on word? Food Matters? All right. Um, And in this book, Beyond the Primal Addiction, we talk about all these different addictions, All the contributors of every chapter wrote about different addictions, but the point of each addiction is that it is some way of resolving inner conflict, something emotional, something that may be out of awareness, whether it is, and my chapter is called food addiction, even though, of course, I don't believe in food addiction. I believe in, if anything, eating addiction. You're not, you're not addicted to the substance of food. You're addicted to the use of eating as a way of coping, whether it's food, you know, gambling, work, shopping, what have you. All of these addictions are ways of coping. They are ways that we have of coping because we live in a society that says, hey, feelings are not okay. You are weak if you have feelings and you are strong if you can push them away, if you cannot feel them, you know, if you're if you're if you're anxious, be strong, fight, you know, don't give in to fear. If you're angry, you're an angry person, you need anger management classes. If you're sad, you must be depressed. You got to take an antidepressant, clearly. And if you're anxious, there's a pill for that too. So the message is there is something inherently wrong with having feelings, but feelings, and by the way, of course, some of us benefit from medication, but I'm talking about injunctions against the, our basic human emotions that connect us to ourselves and to each other. And if we deny them, we, we can't think them away. We can't drop them. We can't ignore them. We can't stuff them down. We can't starve them away. We can't gratitude them away. We can't positive think them away. The only way that we can deal with feelings is to actually feel them and experience them. But we, but how do you do that when we live in a society that says don't have feelings except be happy? That's the one feeling that's acceptable. Well, you know, we learn to cope in these different ways. And that is why it is so important to learn how to express our, uh, identify and express our feelings. And by the way, I, don't, I am not talking about sitting through feelings. I am talking about first you identify it, then you express it, and then you respond to yourself with that soother supporter I was talking about earlier. Um, okay, so we often get so quick and so adept, so good at coping with whatever's going on with food. We don't even know we're getting triggered, but we don't register what the true trigger is. So again, think about what that might have been. Um, and look at your thoughts, your reactions, your emotions, really break down what was happening right before you decided to go to the kitchen or order DoorDash or whatever it is. And then you have to express whatever it is that you're feeling. Journaling, talking to a friend, a therapist, a coach, those are great ways to get emotions out. It's, it's always better to express them out, to get them out of you, than to try to symbolically stuff them down. Um, I, I also think that it's important to express them in a way that you can be heard. Yes, it's good to express them for yourself. Journaling is really powerful, but there's something about being heard by somebody else, the right someone, the person, not someone who's going to be like, yeah, but it could have been worse. 
you know, oh, but look on the bright side. No, not someone like that. Someone who's going to say, hmm, yeah, I am so sorry. That's painful. That hurts. That sucks. What can I do? To be heard by someone else, to have our, our experience witnessed and responded to by others is also really important. Also, consider if this if, if this trigger was deprivation. We always want what we think we can't have. So if you're depriving yourself of certain kinds of foods, you're going to want those foods more. The experience or the anticipation of deprivation just makes us want what we think we can't have. And that's why dieting, which is always restriction in some way, that leads to binging. That's why it's the diet binge cycle. Go on a diet, tell yourself you can't have this or this, this or that, or this, whatever. And then eventually you give in and you eat whatever it is you haven't been allowing yourself to have. And then you think, I already had that. The day is blown, right? Because often there's this black and white thinking, might as well have everything else I can't have. And then it turns into a binge, which is followed by self-recrimination. And then you binge to get away from your own mean voice. Instead, be curious, be a detective. Huh, what was going on with me? What was that? What was that binge about? Was it something that um, was going on emotionally? Was it about deprivation of some kind? What was it all about? Be curious. When we're curious, we're more apt to find answers. When we say, what was that about? Hmm. Our mind wants to give us answers. When we criticize ourselves, our minds just shut down and want to escape the critic. Um, so the answer, by the way, is to stop dieting, to stop restricting. If you know that you can have pizza whenever you want, yes, really, 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 you can, you are less likely to binge on it. But, but of course, before you get to that point where you can eat intuitively and you can trust yourself around food, you do have to cultivate a different way of responding to yourself. Do you have to cultivate a stronger, soother supporter? Um, and last, I just want to say to the people who ask these questions and to you who are watching or listening, remember, there is always hope. You learned this way of relating to yourself. You learn this way of relating to the world, to other people, and to food, and you can learn a new way. You really can create a new paradigm and enjoy a binge-free, happy life going forward. There really, really is hope. Um, okay. More questions? These are questions from people who listen to the show, or I, I should say watch the show. Um and if you have a question for me, feel free to give, like, send me a DM on Instagram or go to my website or find me on social media, uh, Psychoanalyst or The Binge Cure. I'm also on TikTok. You just, I'm all over social media. You'll find me and you can ask me a question. So here's a question. How do I know if I just need more control or if it's something more serious? Hmm. Okay. So we all actually occasionally use food to cope. Occasionally. Maybe not a binge, but maybe you're like, oh, I had a bad day. I'll have, I'm going to have some ice cream. That's using food to cope. It's not binging. It's a little bit of emotional eating, but it all happens. It happens to all of us. It's within the realm of normal. It's not ideal, but it's what, it's, it's what happens. Um, but when it becomes the main strategy that you use when things are tough, when you can't stop, when you're binging all the time and you can't stop, that's an indication that actually you may have binge eating disorder. And that is a clinically diagnosable eating disorder. By the way, it is the most prevalent eating disorder there is. It is more prevalent than any other eating disorder, more than bulimia and anorexia combined. Many, 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 many more people have binge eating disorder than have other eating disorders. And many, many people have 
binge eating disorder and they don't realize they have it. They think they have no control. They think they have no willpower. They think they are food addicts. That's a popular one. But they're wrong. They actually have a clinically diagnosable condition, not mental illness, condition, negative coping strategy that is treatable. Here are some signs that can help you identify if you have binge eating disorder. One is you can't stop thinking about food. You think about food all day. You eat until you're way past feeling full. Sometimes it doesn't matter what you're eating. You just can't stop. And when you run out of things in the refrigerator, you might just eat like dry oatmeal, whatever it is, peanut butter, what, whatever it is, nothing stops you. And you feel shame and remorse afterwards. You eat much more than you would normally eat and in a, in a short period of time. And afterwards, you hate yourself. You feel so much shame. You feel so much guilt, so much self-recrimination. And oh, is that inner critic loud in your head? So remember, binge eating disorder is a way of coping. It is not a food addiction. It is not about willpower. It is not about control. It is not really even about food. It's treatable, which means when you treat the real problem, which is why you're eating instead of what you are eating, you stop binge eating for good. Um, okay. I have a, uh, just a few more minutes. I'm going to answer one more question. Um, this person says, I think my husband is binging in secret, but I am confused. I thought this only happened to women. Well, guess what? Guys struggle with food, weight, and body image too. I once talked to someone who, who asked me if his eating problems were a result of his, his feelings, his, his thoughts and his feelings. I said, yeah, well, yeah, that's a big part of it. And he said, well, I, I'm a dude. I don't have feelings. So, well, yeah, dude, you do. You do have feelings because you are human. Dude, you're human and humans have feelings. And those feelings need your attention, not your condemnation. Guys get a lot of messages that it's not okay to have feelings, except maybe anger. They're told boys don't cry. And the reality is we all cry. We all get sad. We all feel mad, sad happy, afraid, anxious, whatever, the range of feelings. We all lonely. We all have feelings. That's what makes us human. And when we allow ourselves the full range of our emotions, those feelings go away. The way that we get through feelings, the way we make feelings go away is to actually feel them. And then we don't use food to cope. So whatever your gender, male, female, non-binary, your emotions need your attention. And so, uh, you know, for this person, your husband needs like you to understand uh, that something's going on with him and be curious about that rather than focus on the behavior. One of the worst things that partners do is they focus on the behavior. Did you binge today? Is <laughs> not helpful. However, saying, hey, how are you doing? What can I, you want to talk? How can I help? That's helpful. All right. One more quick question. I identified why I want to binge, but it doesn't stop me. What am I doing wrong? Well, first of all, great job in identifying why you want to binge. But here's the thing. Realizing why is only the first step. We don't identify something and then have it go away. We don't realize, oh, I'm I'm really pissed off, and then it goes away. I'm really sad, and then it goes away. That's just identifying it. It doesn't make the feelings disappear. It just gives us information about what it is we have to express. So binging is a way of suppressing certain feelings, or it can be a way of displacing them. What do I mean by that? If you're angry at someone else in your life, like a loved one, boss, a child, someone, a friend, it could be difficult to realize that you're upset with that person. You might be conflicted about feeling upset. And instead, you might eat to suppress those feelings 
And then you end up getting mad at yourself instead. So the emotions that really belong to, you know, whoever it is in your life that you're actually mad at get boomerang back on you. And now you're mad at yourself for what you ate and what you weigh and all the things instead of allowing yourself to realize you actually were just upset at another person and you could process that and you don't even have to talk to that person about it. Um, You got to just recognize you felt something, then you respond to yourself and, you know, means you validate, acknowledge, reassure yourself. That is how you make emotions go away. You identify them and then you express them and then you respond to yourself. That's the key. You don't sit in them. You can't ignore them. You can't do all the things. You especially can't positive think them away. That's so dismissive. That's how you deal with feelings. And when you do that, you stop binging. So that's my show for today. Thank you so much for joining me on the Dr. Nina show. You can also listen later on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like a deeper dive into some of the things that I talked about today, please get my book. It is The Binge Cure, Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating. It is available on Amazon in all formats, including audiobook. And I read it to you. So check it out. Bye for now. Have a good week. Calling all authors. Have you been considering an audiobook? Well, look no further. Come take advantage of Dream Vision 7 Radio Network's unique in-house audiobook production, which includes benefits and bonuses from our radio station. Let our knowledgeable staff guide you to create the audiobook you've always dreamed of without breaking the bank. Check out our full one-stop service from A to Z, including the ACX process. Schedule a free consultation by calling 508-226-1723. That's 508-226-1723. Or go to dreamvision7radio.com. The Dr. Nina Show is now on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network every Tuesday, 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. Eastern Time. From the healing heart of Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland comes a message of hope for people struggling with binge eating. She helps listeners break free from emotional eating by identifying the hidden triggers to binging and provides a path for healing without dieting or focusing on food. As she puts it, it's not what you're eating that's the real problem. It's what's eating at you. Be sure to tune in for diet-free strategies on how to outsmart emotional eating so you can stop thinking about food and start living your best and most happy life. Thank you for joining the Dr. Nina Show, heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. Eastern on Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Join Dr. Nina next time for more diet-free strategies on how to outsmart emotional eating so you can stop thinking about food and start living your best and most happy life. Find out more about Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland at drninainc.com. That's D-R-N-I-N-A-I-N-C.com. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow.